do you know about the Trinity? How would you explain it? When the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they knew little about the God who rescued them. In Exodus 20, God bases all that will follow on his identity as God. But who is this God? How is he different than the multitude of gods worshiped in Egypt? Understanding our three-in-one God, what we call the Trinity, was essential for the children of Israel to understand as it is for us today. Hi, I'm Yvonne Prin from Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. And I'll help you understand the Trinity in our lesson today, which is entitled, Understanding the Trinity. It's not as difficult as you might think. The challenge of understanding the Trinity. Many people believe that the idea of the Trinity is one of the most difficult to understand in the Christian faith, and I very much disagree, and I'll share the details of why in this lesson. But fundamentally, I don't believe that God intentionally wants to confuse us as to who He is. He desires a relationship with us. The challenge to understanding the Trinity is the same challenge as to understanding everything else about our faith. We need to look at God's Word and what it says, which I'll help you do. And please don't just accept the statements that, oh, this is a mystery we can't understand. Understanding the Trinity is also important because not only is it important to our personal faith, but the Trinity is one of the key differences between Christianity and the cults that are distorted interpretations of the Christian faith, such as the Mormon religion and Jehovah Witness, in addition to non-Christian religions such as Islam. All of these have a distorted view of the Trinity, which most often centers on a false identity of Jesus. None of them doubt or deny that Jesus existed, but they do not believe Jesus is God and a part of the eternal trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They say he's either a lesser God, an exalted human, or simply a revered prophet, very wise perhaps, but totally human all of which do not agree with what the Bible says about him. And if you'd like to explore this more fully, please look at my two videos, podcasts, etc. on the historical truth of the Christian Bible and why it's unique from the Bible in contrast to Hindu, Buddhist, Muslim, and Mormon scriptures. Again, that's available on www.bible805.com. And I believe that I, I deal with these questions and answer all of this in a, very, in a way that's very respectful to the various religions. But it is important for you to check that out. So please, when you have time, do that. The problem understanding the Trinity isn't only with other religions. Most Christians don't understand the Trinity, which is why it's hard for them to spot problems with other religions' views of it. If we can't explain it to ourselves or to people who ask us questions about it, these doubts can lead to other doubts about our faith. But the lesson today will clarify the correct doctrine of the Trinity and help you know and understand more fully the God who created you, redeemed you, and loves you throughout all eternity. Now here's how we'll do this. First, we'll establish that the Bible consistently teaches that our God is a trinity, three persons, one God. Then we will look at one of the most common misunderstandings of the trinity today. Then we'll look at a correct view of it using terms defined by Tertullian, the theologian who coined the word trinity. 
And no, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, nor is the word Bible in the Bible, nor is the word Christianity in the Bible. There are many words we use to properly explain biblical concepts that are not precisely in the Bible, but that are biblically correct. Just as reading many Bible passages helps us identify what defines a Christian, so too looking at many passages in the Bible about the Trinity will help us define it. So let's get started on them. First of all, evidences for the Trinity in the New Testament. An early one, of course, is on the baptism of Jesus, where it says in Matthew 3:16 and 17, When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. All three members of the Trinity are here, with the Father speaking, the Spirit descending like a dove to empower Jesus for ministry, and Jesus being baptized. All members of the Trinity are united in their initiation of Jesus' earthly ministry and prefigure their roles in it. The New Testament continues with many references to both the separate and united work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Later in this lesson, we'll talk in much more detail about their various roles in our salvation. Now, what about evidence of the Trinity in the Old Testament? Many people are familiar with Genesis 1-1, where it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, where the word God is in the plural form, Elohim. Also, when God, Elohim, said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. In this passage, again, God is clearly speaking as a plurality of persons. He's not just talking to himself when he says, let us make man in our own image. We know there's a plurality going on there. People looking for the Trinity in the Old Testament get really excited about these two uses of the plural term for God. But... What about the Shema, the statement that seems to clearly state there's only one God? A lot of people who don't believe in the Trinity in the Old Testament will always bring this up. Here is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. At first reading, it's hard to see any evidence of the Trinity in that verse, and many use this verse to deny the existence of the Trinity. However, when you look at the Hebrew word for God in this verse, it is the same plural word Elohim that is used in Genesis for God. And in fact, the word Elohim is used for God 2,600 times. In the Old Testament, in every book, in many, many settings. This is the word that the Old Testament uses again and again and again for God. I have a link that I will have in the notes on for to the Blue Letter Bible, and this literally lists all of the many, many places that Elohim is used in the Old Testament. And I think it's really instructive that this word that implied a plurality, that is the plural word for God, is the one that the Old Testament uses. In reality, the Old Testament from the first book to the last chapter consistently in the use of the plural term for God, Elohim, 
affirms the existence of the Trinity. That use of the word alone doesn't answer all the questions about the Trinity in the Old Testament. And I've done another lesson focusing solely on the Trinity in the Old Testament. Please check that out for a much more detailed discussion of this. In it, I answer such questions as, how do we reconcile passages that say God cannot be seen with other passages that clearly say a biblical character character saw and talked to God? And did Jesus appear to people before he was born in Bethlehem? And why was the Holy Spirit only given to some people in the Old Testament, not all believers? This lesson, again, is available at www.bible805.com. It's on the podcast in the video channels. Knowing that the Trinity, though, is affirmed throughout the Bible extensively, consistently in both the Old and New Testaments is one thing, and that's good, but that doesn't help us understand it. How can we explain three persons, one God? That's what we'll spend the rest of this lesson learning, and again, it is not really difficult to understand, so hang in there with me on it. Now, first of all, I want to give you an incorrect explanation, and I know many people are very well-meaning when they bring this up, but one of the really popular explanations for the Trinity is that it's like ice, water, and steam, or like one person as husband, father, and son. That's all wrong. Unfortunately, that's the theological definition for something called modalism, and it is the unorthodox belief that God is one person who has revealed himself in three forms or modes. In contrast, to the Trinitarian doctrine where God is one being eternally existing in three persons. Now, according to modalism, during the incarnation, Jesus was simply God acting in one mode or role, and the Holy Spirit at Pentecost was God acting in a different role or mode, and God in the Old Testament was was something else. Thus, God, according to the modalists, does not exist at the same time as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Rather, he's one person and merely manifests himself in these three modes at various times, and that is not a biblical view. This is not what the Trinity is. The correct teaching of the Trinity is one God in three eternal coexistent persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Modalism was refuted by the church father Tertullian in 213 AD. It was condemned as heresy by Dionysus, the bishop of Rome, in 262, and it continued to be condemned by a number of the early church councils. There's a satirical but really quite accurate description of the historical and current false teachings about the Trinity on the Lutheran Satire YouTube channel. I'll have a link for that in the notes. Modalism's just one of the misunderstandings, and we just really don't have time to go into all of them. Now let's look at how Tertullian clarified the true nature of the Trinity. He was a lawyer prior to becoming a Christian and a leader in the church. As a result of his study, and in response to what he believed were false views of the Trinity in his day, he coined the term Trinity and defined it as una substantia tres personae, meaning God is one substance, three persons. 
I created a chart to illustrate this, and it's really easy to describe, and I'll describe it to you, but a copy of it is also going to be in the notes, and you can make as many copies as you want to share with Sunday school classes or whatever. By the way, the Una Substantia Trace Persone, that is in Latin. Um, he was one of the first teachers of the church to speak and write in Latin. But here is a biblical view of the Trinity. It's one God, and this one God has one substance or set of attributes. But then there are three persons equally sharing in the attributes eternally coexisting. Now, if you look at the chart, up at the top there's a bar that says one God, and then there's a column down one side that says one substance. And these are the attributes that all of the members of the Trinity share. They're all eternal, they're all love, they're all truth, they're all knowing, omniscient, everywhere, omnipresent, all-powerful, omnipotent, immutable, and unchangeable, and merciful. Now, these characteristics, that's what makes them one. But then they are in three separate distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to discuss in a little bit more detail the difference between substance and personhood. First of all, Tertullian separated substance and personhood because you can have a trinity of anything that has similar characteristics or what works together in some ways. For example, you can have a group of three chairs, a government with three parts, a trio, a group of three people singing together. But what makes the trinity unique in its substantia, its substance, is the attributes of it, not just that it has three parts. Only the Trinity of God has the substance of eternality, omnipotence, total truth, immutability, and the other characteristics. And that substance, those attributes, are shared equally and eternally by each member of the Trinity. Many scriptures point to this uniqueness of God. One example of them is where it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. We have thoughts, we have ways, but God's are so exponentially different than ours. It is the essence of who he is who makes him God. We look now at this is what we call the unisubstantia, the one substance, the characters all members of the Trinity share. But now let's dig deeper into the trace personas. What does it mean to be a person? This comes from an article in Equip.org where it starts off by saying this is what a person is not. A person is not a force, an influence, a rock, a solar object, a myth. Personhood is defined as the distinct personality of an individual regarded as a persisting entity. Personhood is more than form. Now this is important to remember because God the Father and God the Holy Spirit are persons without physical form or limits. Your personhood is what makes you, you. The you throughout all changes all eternity. When you die, you lose your physical body, but you don't cease being a person. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, likewise, are persons. And now we'll see how the Bible describes each one that supports this statement. 
We're going to look at the defining characteristics of personhood that for each member of the Trinity. Now, there are many more. There's, of course, much more detail we could go into, but we're going to look at things that are not mythical ideas, but tangible characteristics. We're going to talk about each of these for each member of the Trinity, and I'm going to have a Bible verse that illustrates each one of them. First of all, we'll talk, we'll talk about their relationships with other persons, their intellect, emotions, and will. Now that we could even do this was actually, I must admit, surprising to me when I first studied the Trinity. Now I thought of Jesus as a person. I mean, obviously he walked on earth and interacted with people and, you know, he said, you know, thy will not mine be done and all these kind of things. But that God the Father and the Holy Spirit were also complete persons was, to be perfectly honest, not something I totally understood until I started really looking up what the Bible said about it. Now, let's go along with what I did looking at the biblical evidence of the personhood of each member of the Trinity. First of all, God the Father engages in personal relationships. And it tells us that in John 3.35, where it says, The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Intellect. It says in Matthew 6.8, Don't be like them, for your Father knows exactly what you need even before you ask Him. Emotions in Psalm 8.6, But you, O Lord, are a God of compassion and mercy, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. All these emotions our God has. Will, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, is my brother and sister and mother. God the Son. The Son engages in personal relationships with God and other people. In uh, John 11, 41 and 42, it tells us, Jesus raised his eyes to heaven and prayed, Father, I'm grateful that you've listened to me. I know you always do listen, but on account of this crowd standing here, I've spoken so that they might believe that you sent me. His intellect, and I, I like this verse, I think it's kind of interesting, where in John 2 it says, but Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. And Jesus' emotions. In Matthew 9, it says, He taught in their meeting places, reported kingdom news, and healed their diseased bodies. He healed their bruised and hurt lives. When he looked out over the crowds, his heart broke. In John 11:35, it tells us Jesus wept. And then, of course, in John 13, 1, it says, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then Jesus did have a will. He said, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And then God the Holy Spirit. And I think you're going to find this really interesting. I know it was to me. The Holy Spirit engages in personal relations. The Holy Spirit said to Philip, Go over and walk along beside the carriage. Intellect and the Father who knows all thing, all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. The Spirit knows what's God's will. And so the Spirit prays for us. Emotions. But they rebelled against him and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he became their enemy and fought against them in Isaiah 63.10. And then in Ephesians 4.30, it says, And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. 
Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. And a will, where it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, it is the one and only spirit who distributes all these gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. Within the Trinity, here are some verses on how Jesus interacted with the Father. They know each other. In Matthew eleven twenty seven. it talks about no one knows the Son the way the Father does, nor the Father the way the Son does. They love each other. The Father loves his Son and has put everything into his hands. They speak to each other. This is, a, this is kind of a neat verse where in Luke, tw- um, <clears throat> they speak to each other. The setting of this verse is after Jesus successfully sent out the 70 and they returned and they were all excited about what had happened. It says that he, Jesus, was filled with joy of the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of, the heaven, Lord of heaven and earth, for hiding these things from intellectuals and worldly wise and for revealing them to those who are, who are as trusting as little children. Yes, thank you, Father, for that is the way you wanted it. And then we have a number of examples of how the Holy Spirit was continuously involved in the life of Jesus from his conception. It says the angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, talking to Mary. So the baby born to you will be holy. He will be called the Son of God. During his temptation, it says then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. In his ministries, it said then that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out throughout all the surrounding region. And then in Acts 10.38, it says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And, of course, one of the most significant ways the Spirit was involved in the life of Jesus is in Romans 8.11 where it says, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. In their interactions, each person of the Trinity has a different role. The theological term for this when discussing these roles is what they call the economic Trinity. Now, the term economic doesn't have anything to do with money. Why they call it that? Well, I started to say I don't know. But the reason is it comes from the Greek word akoinomia, which literally means household management. It is the term that describes the different roles that the members of the Trinity have while all working towards the same goals. Now, here's how it works out in our salvation. God the Father initiates it. It says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. God the Son, Jesus, accomplishes the work of salvation. He, Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. It tells us in 1 John 2, too. The Holy Spirit then regenerates and renews us. In Titus 3.5 it says, According to his mercy he saved us by washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And they all do it together in perfect love and harmony, deferring to one another when appropriate, working to glorify each other, all examples of how we should all work together. 
In review, in summary, the doctrine of the Trinity is not a mysterious hidden teaching, but one clearly taught throughout the Bible. And understanding the Trinity is essential for our understanding of the character of our God and how He works. For a related lesson on the Trinity, which I initially had as part of this one, but made separate because of length, please do see the Trinity in the Old Testament, with a special emphasis on Jesus as the angel of the Lord. And I also have a short lesson and video just explaining the chart I talked about in more detail. The chart shows one God consisting of one substance, all the same attributes, eternal, loving, truthful, etc. All of these different things, this one substance, all of these attributes, characteristics are shared by three eternally distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There's one more thing that I want to mention before I quit, and that is if you're paranoid like me, after I learned about the Trinity, I had this big fear, it was a big worry, that what if I don't understand which member of the Trinity is doing what? Or what if I refer to God in the wrong way? Will that be a big mistake? I mean, will, will God the Father not get the honor he deserves? Will Jesus be upset with me? Will the Holy Spirit be sad? But as I thought about it and prayed about it, no, I don't think so. <laughs> God often uses human analogies to refer to himself. And here's what I came up with that may be useful. I know it was useful to me as I thought about it. For example, when people talk about coming to the Prince, that's my last name, Yvonne Prin, for dinner, they don't say, Yvonne will cook. And my husband Paul will tell jokes and talk. And they both make us feel welcome. People just say, we're going to the Prince for dinner. They're simply going to be with us. My husband and I are a unit in our ministries and life and work. And though we remain individual persons with different roles within it, we love our guests that join us. And we don't expect them to define exactly who did what when they sit down to dinner. I think this is a small, but I hope helpful picture of the much greater unity and unique personhood of the Trinity and the much greater love that the Trinity has for his creation. I think God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit delight when we make even the most feeble attempts to learn more about him or talk about him, regardless if we are exact in our distinctions of understanding of precisely which person of the Trinity is doing what at a precise time. A final reminder about the Trinity. I pray that this study of the Trinity hasn't been merely a theological exercise, but an opportunity for you to get to know our God better. In closing, consider this Trinitarian benediction from the Apostle Paul. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Because our God, the Trinity of three persons existing from all eternity, have shared grace, love, and fellowship among themselves, they can now pour it out on us. That's the essence of the Trinity. Now that wasn't so hard to understand, was it? That's all for now. Please check out the show notes and other materials at www.bible805.com. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Prin, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved 
from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.